0: and the Lord, or sorry, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Then over to First Kings chapter 18. When... King Ahab saw Elijah. Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it to pieces and lay it on the wood and put fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And he took that bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. They limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, "'Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is off relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened.' And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their customs with their swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention.' Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And The water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people... May know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord is God. He is God. And Elisha said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no, not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elisha brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Gotta ask that as we think through just what it means that you are the Lord our God. And how that connects not only to the days of Israel when they were asked to choose between Baal and you, God, but the way in which that same temptation challenges us today. Give us the wisdom to see the temptations to worship other places for what it is. Give us the strength to be faithful to you. And in the midst of our failures and struggles, in our weak moments, by the power of your Spirit, meet us there and lift our faces to you, the God who not only gives us his covenant but keeps it by grace and by love in Jesus. We pray these things. Amen. I think that most of you would agree that it's important to love the people you care about the way that they like to be loved, right? So our default mode may be loving other people the way we want to love them or the way that it's convenient to love them for ourselves or uh, maybe what we think is best. Uh, But if uh, you're a hugger and the people around you are not huggers, then while you hugging them may be an expression for you of love, they may not feel that way, right? And so it's important that you understand uh, how it is that love gets communicated. And a number of years ago, Gary Chapman wrote this best-selling book that sold thousands upon thousands of copies called The Five Love Languages, right? And he basically in the book is unpacking this acts of service, gift-giving, physical touch, quality time, words of affirmation, He's kind of highlighting the different avenues with which people experience love and in which they may want to be loved and encourages us, the readers, to think through that. What love language do we prefer? What love language does our spouse or our friends or the people around us or those who we would reach out to care for, what is their love language? Last week, as we opened the Ten Commandments, we went to the New Testament and heard from the words of Jesus that one way to characterize all the law and the prophets is that it involves loving God with all of who you are. And so one of the ways in which I would encourage us week over week as we come through to the Ten Commandments and read them, not only the commands, but uh, uh, examples of how that either goes well or doesn't go well, and we see this unfold through the life of the people of God, is to see it as a type of uh, an avenue or a way in which we can demonstrate our love for God. So you could think of the Ten Commandments as ten rules that must be followed. And in a sense, that's true. But it's certainly more than that. If we want to love God, and most of us would say, I think that we want to love God, Uh, we want to turn to Him, we want to have that reflected in our lives, then in the Ten Commandments, we have, in a sense, ten avenues, ten perspectives, ten angles for what it means to love God with all of who we are. And this morning, we pick up that first command. It's in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. It's back on page 3 in your worship guide. You shall have no other gods before me. To have other gods is not only to not speak God's love language, it's to fail to love him at all. Loving God involves faithfulness. Faithfulness to the one true God, the one who has created our world and the one who has redeemed us. And so this morning, maybe a main point from the first Kings text and the Exodus text is that uh, God calls us to love him with our worship and to love him alone, even in the temptation and distractions that we face to do otherwise. We are called to love God, to love him alone, even in the face of temptations and distractions to turn other directions. That's what it means when God commands his people that you shall have no other gods before me. And so when God's people had chosen to test that, King Ahab had set up Baals and prophets of Baal, other gods. That the people could worship, whether because they were looking for other options in their life or whether because they just felt the pressure because the king said. And so the power dynamic in their day steered them toward uh, worshiping this other God as well. God recognizes this and sees it for what it is. It's a failure to love him and to love him exclusively. It's unfaithfulness on behalf of God. The people. It's a spiritual infidelity to uh, give up their relationship to the God who delivered them from Egypt and who's brought about their very redemption and to go off and to worship other gods. And so he sends the prophet Elijah to call to them and to recognize how this dynamic is playing out. So in verse 21 of 1 Kings, chapter 18, Elijah does just that. Right? He shows up. He says to the people, I, even I, I'm sorry, before that, he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. This language of limping back and forth, it was a a way of communicating that they weren't faithfully serving one God. They were hedging. They were going back and forth. They were being unfaithful. They were of two minds. They were failing to fulfill God's rule of love to love him and him alone. And so it sets up this conflict between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And they bring about the bull and they set up altars. And then they say, let's pray. And whoever's God responds, that's the one true God. And let's do it in front of all of the people so that people can see God's demonstration of power. And so while in one sense you get the prophets of Baal calling out, crying out, even cutting themselves, they are trying to get the attention of their God to bring down fire. And then you have Elijah who uh, elbows them a little bit in that process and then uh, brings all of the people near to him. And then he prays. But the chief character in this conflict is God himself. And the reason why he's the chief character is because the chief question is, who is the real God here? Will the real God show up? And so with all of the religious practices and with the altars and with the bulls, all of those are the circumstances that are trying to get at the question of, who's the real God here? So when Elijah prays, And God responds. It's him showing up in the story, showing that he is alive, that he is the God who created the world, that he is the God that redeemed his people, and that he is the God who calls to his faithful elect, or he calls to his elect and asks them to be faithful, commands them to return. sends the prophet to plead with them to hear his command and love him in line with the rule of love that same living God continues to call to us today And that's important because I know when we hear the story, and it is a fantastic story, I wish we had the full amount of time to dig in and go through it. You can read it later. I'm glad to talk about it after the service this morning. It's fantastic. There are lots of questions, fair questions. But part of the challenge of the story is the whole calling down a fire, the bulls and the altars. Those things are a bit foreign to us. Like, what does that have to do with me? Well, here's where the connection sits. While you may not wrestle with poles of Asherah or the god Baal, you may not hear prophets who are calling you to worship him. You have lots of temptations and distractions to take your worship elsewhere. We live in a pluralistic society. There are pressures that push in on us that call to us to actively go worship other things. An example of that is when we use our expertise and our competence and our wealth, relatively speaking, and we say, I'll handle my life. I'll take care of what's right or wrong. I'll make all my own decisions. And you go down that path until uh, you need something and you may ask God for help in that moment, but then you go back this way. That is limping between the one true God and your own competence. It is limping between the one true God and the resources that you have. It is diverting your worship. Those are the ways in which we actively face those types of pressures. We passively face them as well. Here's what that may look like. If today you think I can take my worship, my faith, and I can compartmentalize it, I can tuck it away really deep into my personal private life and it'll never affect anything that I do in public, anything that I do at school, anything that I do in my workplace. There are all sorts of pressures to do that, particularly in Montgomery County, where people think they know what it means to be a Christian. So if you say, I'm a Christian, they think they automatically have a bead on who you are, who you vote for, what you stand for, and what your positions are. And that creates a pressure to passively shift away. Well, maybe I don't want to identify with that. It's understandable. But the danger with that is that you begin to compartmentalize your worship and think it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of your life when it does. Following the first commandment, following the rule of love means that the worship of God is going to overflow into every decision that you face in life. So when you show up here on Sunday mornings, we're preparing you for the rest of your week. Worship of God is not just coming on Sundays and getting an hour in and being like, I'm good. Man, I'm so glad I'm following that first commandment. Great. Now I could go out into the rest of my life. This is helping you pray feed at the Lord's supper at his table, to hear from God's word, to connect with other people where you can ask questions about parenting and work and faith and conflict and relationships and messiness and how do we work all through that. It's preparing you to take that worship into all the rest of your life. All of life is worship. And so there's this temptation to passively turn away, deflect, compartmentalize and we face that you face that so while baals and asherahs may not be familiar to you temptations and pressures to worship other things are real and we face them as a community so what do we do will god show up should we get a bowl and build an altar What are our options to know who the one true and living God is in the face of power and wealth and cultural pressure and our own sense of how do we figure out how to navigate this world? Where is our hope to be found? In God himself. In 1 Kings, God sends the prophet Elijah to show up and to call his people to faithfulness. And then God displays judgment Pouring fire out on that altar, and in the text, it's emphatic, it basically consumes everything, it takes care of it all, it answers the questions, and leaves no doubt. Right? Well, a later prophet sent by God not just any prophet, but his son showed up and called the people to hear his word to return from their wayward ways, the failures to love God and God alone, and to return to God. This prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, not only pointed the people the direction to go, not only called them to himself and invited them freely to receive God's grace and participate with him in what God's doing. But here's the big difference, and it's important as we face these temptations— Jesus himself took on the judgment for us. So instead of everyone watching the judgment get poured out on a bull on an altar, when Jesus, not on Mount Carmel, but on Mount Calvary, took upon himself the judgment of God, when we hear, think, see, and do business with the cross— We are doing business with God's judgment that was due us being poured out on Jesus for our sake. So if in the 10 commandments, God is uh, directing people, so on Mount Sinai, God directed his people how to love him. On Mount Carmel, they were corrected on how to do that more faithfully. On Mount Calvary, they were protected and connect it to God himself. That is what we are invited into as Christians. So our hope in the face of the temptations that we face to go our own ways actively or to passively compartmentalize and turn away, our hope on how to navigate that well is found in Christ and Christ alone. The one who protects us from God's judgment and connects us to God himself being united to him, we can faithfully follow the first commandment, not because we're trying to measure up to what God's doing, but out of a thankfulness and faithfulness to a God who's provided. That's what it means for us to follow the rule of love, to give all of who we are in all of our worship, in all of life to God. And that when we struggle or fail to do that, that we turn to him, cry out, give thanks for Jesus' work for us. And by the power of his spirit, ask the triune God to lead us forward. As a church, that's what we're encouraging one another to do. That's how we think through God's call to faithfulness. And that's where our hope is found, in the midst of our own struggles. The living God who calls us to worship him as an act of love, even in the face of temptation, even in the face of distraction, he has provided for us. Let us encourage and spur one another on. Let us work out what that looks like to worship faithfully, not just on Sunday morning, although that's an important part, but in the day in and day out of life. Let me pray. Gotta ask that as a community, you will provide for us. That as we face temptation or struggle that are particular to the metro D.C. area, to Montgomery County, to the places where we work and go to school and live. God, I ask that you will provide for us and encourage our hearts through Jesus. Amen.